You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is John Headley. John is a career officer at CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, spent some 34 years there, and he was a career officer in the Directorate of Intelligence. That is the, they are the analysts that make up the analytical body of the agency. Um, They are, many of them, almost all of them have master's degrees, many have PhDs. Um, They could easily staff a small university today. They are very highly accomplished group of people, and since the inception of CIA in 1947, uh, they have provided what is called all-source intelligence to the policymakers, policymakers being the president, joint chiefs of staff, and so forth. I'm sure John will go into more detail. And today we want to talk to John, who had a very broad experience in the DI, served overseas, and was actually the chief of the staff that produces the president's daily brief. That is sometimes referred to as the PDB. It is not shared with the public. Uh, I believe there was an excerpt made available to the public at the time of the Iraq War, but generally it has very tight distribution. John has both uh, been involved with that product, been chief of the staff, and is thoroughly acquainted with it. And we thought that that subject and John would be of great interest to you. John, good. how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Peter. Good okay. to be here. It's very good of you to join us. John, I wonder if you, with your with your background, would tell us the story of the PDB. Yes, well, it began, well, actually, let me go back to the administration of President Truman, because Harry Truman was the one who really got the ball rolling uh, in the wake of investigations into the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, Truman decided that there were two things that we needed to have and hadn't had before in the way of intelligence. One was a central clearinghouse, one organization where all the information that was collected overseas all came together in one place, and which then reported it directly to the president and did so every day, rather than through a secretary or an undersecretary, but directly to the president. So a daily summary began in the Truman administration and continued during the Eisenhower administration. Uh, Then in the administration of President Kennedy, Uh, There was word from the White House that, well, Kennedy didn't seem to have time to sit down for a formal session uh, with a daily summary. He needed something, he was very much on the go, and he needed something different. 
it was suggested that maybe it would be nice to have a document he could take with him and read at his convenience. And so very quickly, CIA came up with a pocket-sized edition, which could fit into the breast pocket of a suit, and you could carry it with you, pull it out whenever you had a chance, and, and read it. And for some reason, I guess to show that it was a, a new kind of publication, they called it the President's Intelligence Checklist. And uh, given the penchant for acronyms, that, that, that was made uh, P for President's Intelligence I C Checklist, L, uh, and it was called a pickle. And people joked about working at the pickle factory. Where are you working? You work at the pickle factory. Well, because the end product, of course, uh, went to the ultimate consumer, the president. Uh, so the pickle was used during President Kennedy's administration. And then we discovered what has been discovered since from president to president. The presidents have different reading styles, different tastes, uh, like different presentations. When Johnson became president, um, Johnson didn't want to have a lot of things that were like Kennedy. He wanted to have his own own things. So it was decided that it would be a good idea to produce a different kind of publication for him. And he said he preferred to read at the end of the day. So they did a book like, a, you know, a binder where you could turn the pages. Not a long book. We're talking about eight or ten pages. And they call that the President's Daily Brief. And I guess, again, just to make it something that would distinguish it from the pickle. And the President's Daily Brief, or the PDB, was given to Johnson to read in the evening. Uh, the name stuck, and so it's been called the PDB ever since then. Uh, during the Nixon administration, uh, we had another indication of how um, you do different presentational, presentational styles for different presidents. Uh, Nixon was a lawyer, and we were told that he was, he was very lawyerly in the way he approached things. Uh, he liked to separate facts and opinions, and we thought, well, it's a little odd that he can't separate them himself, but if he wants it separated, we will, we will do facts first and then opinion. We will do the reporting and then the analysis. So it was done that way, and we thought, well, if he works like a lawyer, maybe he would like sort of a legal pad presentation. So the PDB was presented uh, in, a, in a booklet that was like a legal pad where you, it was bound at the top and you lifted up a page behind it and you read it as if you were reading a legal pad. Uh, we were not too sure that Nixon was reading it every day and I, that brings up a point I think that's worth making is that it, it isn't a foregone conclusion that every president is going to have somebody from the intelli some intelligence officer come in and present a briefing. Um, when presidents win the White House, they usually do so at the end of a long campaign. Their campaign aides, their, you know, their, their, uh, their core supporters, their uh, kind of central group is very protective of that candidate and they're accustomed to to uh, defending against efforts to kind of undo the person and so they're battle scarred and when they win that oval office they tend to have a sort of a circle of wagons mentality and they're they're very very protective of the president so even if your mission is to bring information to the president they may want to keep you at arm's length henry kissinger was the gatekeeper for Nixon and uh, a gatekeeper par excellence. Uh, he 
wanted to be the one who was the purveyor of information to the president and not have somebody come in independently from the intelligence community. So it, it was necessary to go through Kissinger to get at Nixon. And uh, this was the case until actually uh, Nixon was replaced by Gerald Ford. And, and Ford was really a significant step from the perspective of those of us who prepared the PDB, because um, when Ford replaced Spiro Agnew as vice president, he was new to the president uh, to the to the White House, new to intelligence, and so the director of Central Intelligence at the time, Bill Colby, thought it would be nice to invite the new vice president to come out to CIA and learn the ropes and see the place. Um, so Ford came out for a visit, and quite innocently, Colby was telling him how we did this and how we did the PDB, and uh, and Ford said, oh, well, what's the PDB? And, and we were surprised to discover that Nixon had never shared with his vice president, a heartbeat away, the fact that he got a daily briefing on intelligence. So Colby asked if he would like to see this, I can imagine that an interesting conversation ensued at the White House afterwards when Ford talked to Nixon and said, why didn't you tell me that you were told about you know, intelligence every single day? At any rate, there was agreement by the White House that yes, Ford should see this as well. And Colby, I think again innocently, but wisely said, we could have one of our officers bring this PDB to you at your convenience. And Ford said, well, why don't you bring it to my house at the beginning of the day? So quite by accident, we established this practice of an intelligence officer. This was a fellow named Dave Peterson. And Dave would go to the Ford's house in Alexandria and sit down at the kitchen table, and they, he and President Ford would go through the PDB. And this was a wonderful thing because that meant that Dave Peterson would come back with feedback directly and and uh, and directly tell us you know what the reaction was to these people what were the interests uh, of the vice president what did he need to know more about did he need a memo on this or a little bit more on another subject so it was very useful to have a briefer sit with the person who's reading the pdb and gauge you know what what the producers should know about the next issue or coming issues then when ford became president after Nixon's resignation, Ford continued to have a briefer come to where he lived, which now was the White House. And that was how we got access to the Oval Office. That was the first time that a, what I would say is a working level CIA officer, uh, probably um, GS-14 or 15, sort of Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel level, who was involved in preparing the publication, actually came to the White House with it. Uh, I was talking with Dave Peterson not long ago about his experience going to Ford's house, and then and Dave was telling me about his first experience in the White House, first time he went to the Oval Office, and uh, gave the briefing to Ford, got up, left, opened the door to say goodbye, waved to the president, went into the room and closed the door behind him, only to discover he'd gone into the private bathroom of the president and that there was no way out but to reemerge into the president's Oval Office. 
where Ford was breaking up with laughter because he said, the first time I tried to leave this office, that's what I did. Um, anyway, that was, that was a, an interesting sidelight from, uh, from uh, Dave Peterson. Now, after the Ford experience, which, is, uh, which I've noted, uh, was ideal because now we had somebody going to the Oval Office every day with the PDB. Ford was followed by Jimmy Carter, and the CIA briefer was rebuffed. So that great entree we had on a daily basis, we didn't have because, again, a gatekeeper was interposed. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was the national security advisor. And he was absolutely determined that uh, nobody was going to see the president but, but him when it came to the subject of intelligence or foreign policy. Um, even the director of central intelligence had to be in the company of Brzezinski, and, and those meetings became less frequent, you know, once every two weeks, then once a month, and then hardly ever. And uh, Brzezinski actually uh, boasted afterward in his memoirs of how he had taken control of the daily briefings in the White House. But these briefings then began to flourish under the administration of President Reagan. Uh, when Reagan became president, his vice president, George H.W. Bush, had previously been director of Central Intelligence. And as director of CIA, he had learned at first hand, hands-on, what the agency could do, the capabilities of the agency. And he believed that the best way that a president could begin his workday was with the president's daily brief, that this was your best single source of a daily intelligence update. So it was wonderful for us because George H.W. Bush became the PDB's advocate in that administration. And that's when I joined the team. Uh, a fellow named Charles Peters, Chuck Peters, was at that time heading the PDB staff. I became his deputy, then, then later became chief of what we call the current support group that had both the National Intelligence Daily and the PDB in it. And we began briefing in the Reagan administration, but interestingly, never briefed Reagan himself. The idea was that we each morning would brief his national security advisor. Over the period of eight years, there was a sort of a revolving door. We began with William Clark, Judge Clark from California. Uh, then we went to uh, Poindexter, and from Poindexter, we went to Bud McFarland. But we always briefed in the White House, in the West Wing, the National Security Advisor right before he went up to a staff meeting that combined domestic and foreign policy subjects. And I think it, it was thought that it was not necessarily appropriate for a CIA officer to be there as they, they wanted to be able to talk freely about the interplay of domestic and foreign policy. Let me just uh, interpose a question here, uh, uh, John, and that is, uh, who gets the PDB besides the president now? Well, at the time, it was the most selective publication, perhaps, uh, in existence. It had a, a circulation of six. In addition to the president, there was the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the Vice President, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs was then added as a sixth reader. So uh, that, that was the extent of the dissemination of that. And it was so closely held, uh, the PDB was considered so sensitive that it was, it was brought under lock and key by an intelligence officer who then would go over it with the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense or the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but never leave a copy. 
after after it was read, it went back to the briefcase. The briefcase was locked. A car was waiting, and you went back to headquarters. And But then the briefers were able to report on the reaction of the various readers. I joined the briefing team, uh, which for a time consisted of just Chuck Peters and me. But then it soon turned out that there was no way that the two of us alone could brief five different people every morning. I mean, you, I, I started out with Secretary of Defense Weinberger and then would hurry and dash over to the White House and see the National Security Advisor in the West Wing and then quickly run across the parking lot uh, or the little inner street between the West Wing and the Executive Office Building and sit down with the Vice President. And you could do three in one morning while the other person was doing two. But uh, And we alternated days. You couldn't do that every single day because uh, whoever was briefing in the morning stayed the night before to, to edit and do the signing off on on the publication when it went to press. So you maybe didn't get out until 8 or 9 at night, and then you got up at 4.45 in the morning and started your run. And uh, you needed to do that on alternate days and not every day, or you'd wear out pretty fast. One other question. I I know at some point we also began offering a briefing. Now, I don't know if it included the PDB. I think it did. Two presidential candidates in that pre-electoral period. In other words, once they had become the official candidates of the parties, um, we then offered to go to wherever they were and brief them. When did that begin? That's, that's exactly right. That began even before the PDB. It was President Truman who I think correctly believed that he was inadequately prepared, uh, just as Nixon wasn't sharing intelligence with Ford, it's clear that Franklin Roosevelt did not intel- share any intelligence with, with Truman. And he felt that anybody who became president needed to be much more conversant with what was going on in the world than he had been. So uh, at the time that uh, Eisenhower and Stevenson were the candidates of their parties uh, back in 52, uh, Truman said that each one of these, as soon as they were the official nominee of the party, needed to have a worldwide briefing. Uh, But I think that was just a single briefing. That evolved over the years to the point that now I am sure we will offer this year to the candidates from each of the two parties, once they are officially the candidates of the party, they will probably be offered the PDB on a daily basis, and we will go to wherever they are traveling. Has that and, that has not been the case until now? That is, that's ha- not been that. That uh, actually is that's began quite recently. It began, I know, with uh, with George W. Bush. Of course, it was easy to to brief the other candidate, who was Gore, who was already the vice president. He was already getting the PDB, and uh, it was felt that I, th- I think President Clinton felt well it it really wasn't quite fair for Gore to have this on a daily basis, and the other candidate didn't. So once each of them got sort of a big overview worldwide threat briefing in the summer, then after the conventions and we're getting toward the election, these people got briefed just as the president did, the same same material, even before the election. Uh, this began even before the election. And then, of course, once the election decides the candidate, then they are going to be getting a briefing every day during the interregnum until they're inaugurated. This was a little bit awkward uh, during the 2000 election when this began because 
it took a while for the election to be resolved. <laughs> you know, and everybody thought, well, after as soon as the election vote, we'll know what to do. Well, no, we didn't <laughs> because it, it it was strung out for a while. Well, you had taken us through President Reagan. I wonder if you could just perhaps comment on on uh, uh, both President Clinton, of course, who did two terms, and President Bush as recipients of the PDB before we have to uh, close out. Okay, President Clinton did not want a briefer. So here we had had a period, uh, obviously, when Vice President Bush, who had, who had been the advocate of the PDB and who had received it every day as vice president, uh, and it was always fun to go to his place on Saturday. It was much more relaxed. You know, you could go to... Uh, Naval Observatory on uh, Massachusetts Avenue and go into his house on a Saturday morning and uh, you sit on the couch and Barbara would come downstairs in her bathrobe and say, would you like some orange juice or coffee? And the dog Millie liked to be scratched, so I always had the PDB in one hand and Millie's ears in the other. I mean, that was, a, you know, that was kind of a nice respite on Saturday mornings. But after 12 consecutive years of briefing daily with the PDB, um, Clinton did not want a briefer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he wasn't interested in the PDB. We understood that his chief of staff read it every day faithfully, and uh, the vice president, Gore, did have a briefer. So he got it every day from a briefer. Uh, then when Bush became president, George W., uh, President 43, Bush 43, uh, obviously he was much more inclined to go back to what his father had done. Uh, whether or not his father actually, I, I would suppose, recommended this or not. Uh, he certainly took it aboard as something he wanted to try. He liked it, and it has continued under George W. Bush, uh, much as under under the Bush, the, the elder Bush's administration, with, a, with an intelligence officer every morning. And, of course, now technology enables us to do some things that were much harder to do then. Uh, it used to be when... When, when somebody when a president traveled overseas, then you would you would cable the PDB um, to the station chief who would who would then brief the president and then uh, you know destroy after reading, and and you had to make do makeshift things like this. It's much easier now to transmit it in a secure way and actually print it out so it looks just like the copy the president would get in Washington. But it's, that's been the practice under uh, George W. Bush. And I would guess we're, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate a different presentational style for a new president. Let me ask you one last question, John, and this has been a, a wonderful walk through history here uh, with the different presidents. With the reforms of the 9-11 uh, Commission and the formation of the Directorate of National Intelligence, the DNI, it's my understanding that he or she, it's a he right now, is the one who presents the PDB to the president uh, since the formation of the DNI, but in fact, most of it is still prepared at CIA. Could you comment that, on that's, that? That's correct. I think simply because it has been housed at CIA and, and you have the critical mass of analysts there, uh, even though there is representation by the, the broader community, uh, there's an officer from the State Department, from the National Security Agency, from the Defense Intelligence Agency, but uh, most of the writing still is done. It, it's welcome from other entities. But it's still mostly done by officers of the Director of Intelligence at CIA. Um, it is now a community product. The Director of National Intelligence usually attends in the White House. But a, a CIA officer, uh, an intelligence officer at the working level, still comes. And uh, they now have two, and they... they 
they work it, I think, differently. One will work for several days in a row, and then the other will do several days in a row. But you still have a working level officer who's been involved in the preparation of it, who brings it to the Oval Office. Um, president, the current President Bush, uh, likes to have other people there, and so he may have other, you know, maybe uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense may be there, the Director of National Intelligence is very often there. And, uh, you know, the new president is going to have to decide, you know, do I, I want this from a staff-level officer? Do I want this from my own choice for Director of National Intelligence? Or how do I want to continue this? But it is now more of an intelligence community product than in its origin as a CIA product. Well, John, this has been a fascinating walk through history, and it, it's, it's so interesting to learn how different presidents have have received the product of the intelligence community. I think that's always a fascination to people. Well, I think it's it's fascinating to me. Most people think of espionage in terms of, you know, the collection operations that are risky and exciting. But at, uh, there's an element of risk and excitement in uh, facing a deadline to get the PDB to the president. Well, John, you've been part of that, and you've been a wonderful, wonderful raconteur for our interest in the PD. Thank you again so much for joining it's us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you, and uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org.